Well, I would be amiss not to uh, begin this morning with a just a word of gratitude to the Lord for 10 years of North Hills and um, could echo pretty much everything that James and Justin and Ryan has said, um, probably everything that if you've been with us for any length of time, uh, think as well. North Hills has been um, not just a good church, not just a, a good church to be a part of, not just a good church family. Uh, not just a good experiment, uh, but it has been truly a gathering of God's people for the glory of God. And someone reminded me recently, said, John, you haven't mentioned the four G's lately. Well, what better day to remind ourselves of our four G's than today uh, that God truly has called us. And uh, we have seen by God's grace that we have been a church that has gathered, uh, that has grown, that has given and has uh, gone. I messed it up when you try to put it in different tents, don't you? We are churches to gather, grow, give, and go. That feels more natural, right? And so, um, and as uh, as has already been said, we uh, we continue to do those things, and we continue to look to the Lord to give us the strength to do those and do those well for His glory and by His strength. And so, uh, that continues to be our desire. Ten years into North Hills uh, is to gather as God's people to grow. Uh, by God's grace, uh, to give uh, as Christ has given us and to go as Christ has commanded us. And so, um, and like James uh, said as well, just for even myself, my family, North Hills has been just a um, a blessing and an oasis and has been the greatest uh, joy in our life to serve in these past 10 years. So looking forward to uh, to many more. Amen. Well, we'll save the rest for our celebration. Uh, we will celebrate in our, sometime in the future, whatever that may be, hopefully in the next month or so, six weeks. Uh, but we desire to kind of, uh, as we always do, look for a reason to celebrate. And so what better reason to celebrate than 10 years of ministry? And so once this fellowship hall uh, gets finished over here, uh, we'll have a place to do so. And so we'll both celebrate uh, the renovation of our fellowship hall and the uh, gathering of God's people for 10 years. And we're also, as we finish this uh, thought, also grateful for all those the Lord has brought to North Hills. And so as we look out and see many more families that have been added along the way and several that are a couple that are, uh, will be, be, be new covenant members in the weeks ahead, uh, just very grateful for all those the Lord has brought. Well, with that in mind, as we have done for 10 years, let us continue uh, systematically going through God's Word. And so this morning, uh, as often is the case of North Hills in our tradition, sometimes our text does not line up with necessarily what's happening uh, around us. And so as we celebrate, we get to talk about the gloom and doom of God's judgment upon sinners and the ungodly. So um, so let's turn our attention now to Jude. If you've been with us these past um, nine weeks, we are... Uh, right here towards the end of Jude, uh, but not quite done. So we still have a little time left here. But we are kind of finishing up this section, if you will, uh, in Jude, where these past three or four weeks we've been walking through uh, Jude's, for lack of better words, his attack on these people uh, who have infiltrated the church. Starts there in verse 4. These certain people who have crept in unnoticed, and they've long ago were designated for condemnation. And so what he's going to address this morning is not new uh, to this letter. He's already addressed the fact that they've been designated for condemnation. Uh, he's already talked about 
uh, their, uh, the punishment of angels, but he's going to kind of come back and revisit and the, the ultimate judgment that is to be brought upon these people who are not of the Lord. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But it's all really tied to a prophecy, as we'll see in Enoch. And so let's read our text, verses 14 through 16, and we'll back up and unpack it. Amen? All right, so verse 14 of Jude, Jude chapter 1. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray as we uh, get into God's Word. Lord, we thank You for this morning. Lord, as You have been so gracious to us this past decade, we thank You for another opportunity to gather as Your people Lord, to open your word and to desire to hear from you, not by our own ability, but by your Holy Spirit. So would you speak to us this morning for our good and for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for this walk through Jude and help us to see, Lord, um, that your judgment is certain for sinners, and that your grace is even more certain for your people. Lord, we thank you and we love you and praise these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this prophecy, as we're going to look at in just a moment here, this prophecy that comes from Enoch, uh, there's three things we'd like to see about this prophecy as we break it down. First of which is this, we see who made the prophecy. Very clear, and he's very clear who Enoch is and who made the prophecy. It says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So very clear uh, not just that it's Enoch, there are a couple Enochs in the scripture, but which Enoch that he's speaking of is Enoch the seventh from Adam. Go with me to the book of Genesis real quick. Genesis chapter 5, we don't know a whole lot about old Enoch, but what we do know is fascinating. But Genesis chapter 5 is kind of the, uh, in about two verses here, or three or four verses, you can see uh, pretty much almost all that we know about Enoch. He's mentioned in Hebrews, of course, he's mentioned in Jude, and we'll talk about another place that he's mentioned in great detail in a moment. But Genesis chapter 5 uh, tells us all about what we know, kind of the background of Enoch. Genesis 5, 21, it's, and this is the genealogy, of course, uh, from Adam to Noah. And so in the middle of this uh, genealogy is verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So very interesting. We won't um, linger on all these details and get into all the, the little uh, the nuances of the just kind of some of these exciting aspects of Enoch, but just su- suffice it to say, uh, as Jude says, he is the seventh from Adam, and that's if you include Adam. So if you go to Adam, you start there 
In uh, Genesis 5-1, you'll see there's Adam, who has Seth, who has Enosh, who has Kenan, who has Mahalil, who has Jared, who has Enoch. And so he is the seventh, including Adam, from creation. And so we see that he is uh, where he kind of falls in, in that lineage. Uh, he's one of the early on guys, the seventh generation of humanity that we see. Uh, he fathered Methuselah. And so uh, Methuselah, in case you don't know, you can read down there in 25 and 26. Methuselah lives 969 years. And so most people know Methuselah for one thing. What's that? He's the oldest man in the Bible, 969 years. Uh, but he also was the grandfather of Noah. So he had Lamech and Lamech had Noah. Uh, we see that uh, it says very interesting there in verse 24 that he walked with God. Enoch walked with, walked with God, especially during a time in which sin was becoming more and more pervasive throughout the earth. Uh, Enoch walked with the Lord. And, um, and that means a lot. There's a lot that you can unpack there. But he was faithful. He was one of those who walked with the Lord, who looked to the Lord and trusted the Lord uh, in the midst uh, and during a time in which most of the earth did not. And what's most interesting is one of the two men uh, we see in Scripture, and we don't know exactly what this means, but it says, as he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so he gone, for, for uh, use today's terms. And so uh, it seems that he did not experience a physical death. Uh, but again, we won't unpack that this morning, but he definitely uh, is. There's a lot of interesting things about Enoch. Uh, well, what's a little more interesting about Enoch is there is a book of Enoch. Now, if you look through your Bible, you won't find the book of Enoch. It's not in one of our 66 books. We've mentioned some other apocryphal books uh, in our time in Jude because Jude loves to just to name drop some apocryphal books, things that we don't hold to be canon. And which likely, or not likely, but which as far as we know, Jude would not have held to be canon. Uh, and, and some would even say the reason he, that he mentions that Enoch being the seventh from Adam, he kind of brings in a little authority there, if you will. So I know that the book of Enoch is not necessarily, we're holding to be scriptures. He's talking to his original audience here. But there's something that Enoch has said, because he quotes Enoch, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. And he goes on, and this, this prophecy that God is coming back to judge and to convict is not found in Genesis. It's not found anywhere else in the Old Testament, but it's found in this book of Enoch. So as he quotes this non-canon book, as he quotes this book that is not found in the, uh, the Jewish Bible, if you will, he recognizes, um, he, he obviously knows that, but he uses it. And because he uses it, it becomes authoritative for us. Because he says this, because he quotes it, it is something that is good, like all Scripture, for teaching, correcting, and rebuking, and training in righteousness. And so, uh, just real quick, three things about the book of Enoch. There's a, uh, there's a lot of chapters in there. It's kind of like Psalms, over 100 chapters in First uh, Enoch. Uh, three things that I think are interesting about First Enoch are this that uh, one, the fact that he uses this does not suggest the validity of the whole book. Just because he references first Enoch does not mean the whole book is something that we should pick up and go take and read. Just like the other apocrypha that he mentions doesn't mean the whole book is necessarily truth, objective truth that we know the Word of God to be. You can take the Word of God, you can take these 66 books of the Bible, and with confidence, with the most confidence of anything that you can have in this life, you can read to know that it is true. You can read to know that it is God's revelation to us. 
that he has preserved for us for all of these years. And so it's a reminder to us, even as we think about the use of Enoch and the use of some of these other books that we see in Jude, it's a reminder that all truth is God's truth. And so just because first Enoch is not in our canon does not mean there is not truth in there. And so uh, Jude, knowing that his audience understands Enoch, understands the book of Enoch, he pulls a section out of it to say it, to, to point them to truth, just like Paul does. Paul quotes some Greek philosophers and others quote others. And if it's in Scripture, we know it to be true. Secondly, it does not affirm that looking to other sources for it does not affirm us to looking to other sources for objective truth. We only God's word is our source of objective, uh, undeniable truth. And so there's no need to go read and study First Enoch. There's no read to go. Uh, to, there's no need to go study the Book of Jasher. There's no need to go study these things because all the truth that we need is right here. If there's over a hundred and something chapters in First Enoch, God gave us one verse that we need right here in our life. It's found in Jude, verse 14. And then thirdly, as we think about uh, being aware of First Enoch, and it does not discount Jude as canon. Some would say because Jude references Enoch, then we should uh, throw Jude out. We know that is not the case. We know that God has preserved the Bible that we have in these 66 books of Scripture, 27 books of the New Testament. We understand that God has preserved this. He's given this to us. We understand that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's also a reminder to us of who the author of Scripture is. The author, as we often say, is not Jude. He is the writer. The Holy Spirit is the author. And he inspired him to include this line from Enoch, that God would come with his 10,000 angels to bring judgment. So as we look at this prophecy, the first thing we see is who made the prophecy, and that is Enoch. The second thing we see is what the prophecy is about, the content of the prophecy. And so he says this, uh, and it was also about these, Enoch, and of course, as we know, these, he's referring to these people. And we keep seeing throughout Jude's letter that started in verse 4, when he said certain people in verse 4. In verse 8, he said these people. And in verse 10, these people. And again, in, uh, in verse 14, about these, about these people that Enoch is speaking about. So what is Enoch saying? Simply put, Enoch is saying, Holy, the Holy Spirit is saying that the Lord comes to judge and to convict. But if you look at the actual quote from Enoch, there is one word difference, which to me is essential. To all of us is essential. It's, Enoch would actually say, if you go look at First Enoch, it actually comes from chapter 1, verse 9. It would say, behold, he comes with his 10,000 angels. But Jude, using it as he intends to use it, as the Holy Spirit intends to use it, doesn't say, behold, he comes. He says, behold, the Lord comes. Behold, the Lord comes. And so Jude is emphasizing Christ's role in judgment. He is emphasizing Christ's role in the last judgment and bringing judgment to all people, specifically to all ungodly sinners as we'll see as you work through jude this morning and so uh, we see that he's talking about these people we see that he's uh, talking about the lord christ who's coming uh to judge these people these ungodly people but what's very interesting to me to get into a little bit of uh of technical writing here is this word comes 
It says, Behold, the Lord comes. And this is uh, what some people call prophetic perfect tense. Now, I wouldn't bring this up if it wasn't important. What this means is this, and we see this often in the Old Testament with prophets as they would say, uh, they would use this tense that we call prophetic perfect, that it is a past tense, um, under, it's a past tense form of the word describing a future tense action. Now make sure you didn't, I didn't lose you there. So a prophetic tense is this, is whenever you say something in past tense, but it, but it applies to something that has not happened yet. And so the reason this is important is because of the confidence and the certainty that comes with the word. It says, behold, the Lord comes. And it has, he hasn't come yet. He's come when we know, especially at this time in Jude's right, we know Christ has come. We're going to celebrate Christmas here soon and the, 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 second, the first coming of Jesus. But this is referring to the second coming of Christ, that he will return, that he is coming. And he says it with confidence. He says it with certainty. There is no doubt. It's not, behold, we hope Christ is coming. It's not, behold, he is expected to come. It's not, behold, we are crossing our fingers. It's not, behold, we have been told in times past that he comes. He is saying with full expectation that God is coming, that the Lord is coming, that Christ is coming. And so the use of this prophetic perfect tense, it just gives us this reminder that it is definite, it is definitive, it is happening. And this is not something that, that just Jude realized. This is something that we see from the beginning, that we see from, from early on this, this, uh, this, this prophecy, this proclamation that Christ would come to bring judgment to the ungodly, to the wicked, to sinners. And so he continues, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. 10,000 of his holy ones. And so we see that he includes angels here. And this is not the first use of angels for Jude, even in his short letter. He's referenced them uh, on a couple different occasions in two vastly different ways. If you look there, uh, starting in kind of verse 5 through verse 7, you see the first way in which he uses angels. He talks about the angels who rebelled against God. He talked about the angels uh, who were cast out from heaven and they were reserved for judgment. And we're speaking about this morning. There in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we see this use of angels there. But we also see Jude mention angels again there in verse 8. It says, uh, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme the angels. We walked through that back when we were going through verse 8. But now Jude points out to how the faithful angels, how they will be used in Christ's work. Whenever Christ comes, when the Lord comes to, to enact judgment and to bring the wrath of God against sin and sinners, he does so with ten thousands of his angels, with a legion of his angels that we see as Christ returns. And this is nothing new. We see in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. 
In Mark chapter 8, it says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so we see throughout Scripture, we can go through the Old Testament on so many occasions that it, it talks about whenever God comes, when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, that he will do so with his angels. Go with me to Matthew chapter 25 for a moment. And many would say that uh, as we studied Jude, as we studied the context, and um, that many would say that one reason that these uh, these people, these false teachers specifically in Jude's time, were refuting angels and blaspheming angels was because they were rejecting the second coming of Christ. They were rejecting the judgment that would follow. But in Matthew chapter 25, we'll start there in verse 31. And read a, a good little section here. So excuse me. So read kind of fast. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's just this, this beautiful and yet just uh, even tragic picture of, of judgment being brought. And as, as the Lord comes, he is, he is king and He is shepherd. And He sits and He separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right hand and on the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you, are, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So we see this eternal damnation, this judgment, this wrath is poured upon the devil, his angels, and the, these who he classifies as goats, these who are not of him. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsting or stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister, minister to you? And then he will answer, them saying, truly I say to you, as you do not do to the least of these, you do not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the, right, but the righteous into eternal life. I know that there's a lot of verses, I know there's a lot of fast talking there, but the point I want us to see together is that it is inevitable, it is certain that Christ is coming he is coming not just as shepherd, he is coming as king. And as shepherd, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And as king, he will, he will pronounce judgment, certain judgment, eternal judgment. Not just a temporary judgment, but an eternal judgment for sinners, for Satan, and for his angels. The return of Christ is inevitable. He is coming. He will return for His church. And when He does, He will bring judgment upon the world. So we see as we look at this prophecy, we see who the prophecy 
uh, was made by Enoch. We see what the prophecy is about, the uh, bringing of judgment uh, and conviction to the world by Christ. And thirdly, we see specifically who this prophecy is against. And so as we look in verse 15 here, that he comes to execute judgment on all and to convict and Count how many times you hear ungodly. To convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Four times in one verse. Jude, who's written this very short letter, one of the shortest letters, one of the shortest books in Scripture. And he, one verse, he He chooses to use ungodly or some form of ungodly four times. He is making it very clear that Christ is coming to judge the ungodly. And he's making it even more clear that these people that we've been talking about, these people who have infiltrated the church are ungodly, sinful, wicked people. He makes He's not ashamed to say this at all. Sometimes we get a little hesitant to call out uh, the unfaithful. We, 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 we tend to get kind of uh, withdrawn. We don't want to say something that's going to hurt someone's feelings uh, against those who are misleading God's church. We don't want to call out false teachers. We don't want to call out those who are clearly in the church, but not of the church. And Jude does not mind a bit. He makes it very clear. It's like if I wasn't clear enough, starting in verse 8, as I've been describing these people who were blasphemous and rebellious and they rely on visions and all these things, and he, talk, he, he refers to them as animals, as these who understand as, as wild animals, and, and as they walk in the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah's rebellion, as he calls them waterless clouds and all the things that we've walked through. And just in case it wasn't clear, Jude says, they are ungodly, wicked, sinful people who have crept in unnoticed to the church. So we must be careful. We must be on guard. We must be cautious against those who have crept into the church unnoticed. That they, are not, they do not have the righteousness of Christ. They do not have the love of Christ inside. They're not compelled by the love of Christ. But instead, they are ungodly, wicked, sinful people. The ungodly that Jude uses four times here makes it clear that these people who profess to be godly are indeed ungodly. And so what does it mean to be ungodly? It means to be ungodly. It means not to be righteous, not to be godly, not to be Christ-like. It means to be separated from God. The actual word actually better means uh, impious. Is an enemy of God. It means to walk in unrighteousness, to be f- sinful, to be unconvicted by the Holy Spirit. These things are what describe and what define an ungodly individual, an enemy of God. Don't roll your eyes. Go with me to Ephesians. We cannot celebrate 10 years at North Hills and not end up in Ephesians. We're not going to read all of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're going to read just the, the bad part, the bad half, the first three verses here. I cannot find a better passage in Scripture. Now, there's not. I cannot find a better passage in Scripture that defines ungodliness. 
that defines the sinner. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Now hang on, that won't come back to it towards the end. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And just as what we see in these people in Jude who are sensual and carrying out the sins of the flesh. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if you want a definition of what it means to be ungodly, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is the, is the best description that you'll get of what it means to be ungodly. To be a, a nature at, enmi- at enmity with God, an enemy of God, at war with God, have nothing to want to do with God, but yet these people have crept into the church. They seem to be the godly ones. They're the ones who are teaching Sunday school and first century church here. They're the ones who are, who are uh, discipling others. They're the ones who are trying to convince people or whatever it is they're trying to convince them. But they are maybe godly on the surface. But in their heart, they are ungodly. And it's, Jude, it's Jude's goal to make the church aware that they have crept in and they are not of the Lord. Jude describes his opponents as ungodly in their walk, as ungodly in their way, and as ungodly in their words. And that's not just me trying to be alliterative. You can see it right here. Execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly, all the ungodly of all of their deeds, all of their works of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way. So even how they are, how they go about things, is ungodly and sinful and wicked. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. So Jude is making it very clear that they are not just this subjective ungodly, but they are ungodly in their words, in their works, and in their ways. And then, just in case... The readers, the listeners are not really dialed in. He gives them one last go here. He describes them in five ways. He gives five vivid pictures here of these ungodly, sinful, wicked opponents. In verse 16, it says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so he's about to, as we kind of uh, shift in uh, next week to verse 17, he'll kind of come back a little bit to these, these people. But really he's going to turn his attention to, to the church and, tell, to, and remind them how they are to live and how they are to walk in Christ. But it's kind of one last shot here. He, he calls them out. He says they're grumblers and fault finders. They're pursuing their own desires. They're boasters. And so what... What do these mean? And briefly, grumblers. 
It, it's interesting, as we've said from the beginning, Jude is writing to a primarily Jewish audience here, and they understand all of these, these Jewish contexts. They talk about the book of Enoch and talk about these things that for us we have to kind of dial in and understand. But when he says grumblers, all of us understand what grumbling is, right? Understand grumbling. And you can probably even today, if you have kids, if nothing else, you've heard grumbling and complaining. If you're married, you probably have heard grumbling and complaining. If you're alive, you probably have grumbled and complained to some extent in your life. There's been something that has been uh, unsatisfying in your life today, right? And then hopefully the Spirit of God convicted you and convinced you, you know what? You shouldn't be grumbling because all that I have done for you in Christ. But whenever he mentions grumblers here, it's not just your everyday normal grumbling and complaining and being discontent. But specifically, it links them to the Israelites. The Israelites, what they're known for as they are traveling the desert, grumbling and complaining. And who are they always, in, who, who are they always grumbling to? To the same person. Always to the Lord. Sometimes Moses gets it, sometimes Aaron gets it, but ultimately they are complaining and they are grumbling against God, against their provider, against their redeemer, against their rescuer. And so he says, don't be a grumbler. He said, these people, these ungodly, sinful people, they are grumblers. They are complainers. They are not satisfied. They are not content. And we can see clearly even in the New Testament, the believers are called to be content in all things. Because regardless of our circumstances, our, our circumstances can be bad, right? And the, the, the false teachers, these people of today, they want to tell you that if you were following Christ, then things are not going to be bad, right? Your life's going to be better. You're going to experience your best life. Well, that's not true. You may experience your worst life. And this, this earth may get really bad, may get very difficult, may get sick. Your family may get sick. You may lose loved ones. You may lose a job. You may fill in the blank. You may have reason to grumble and complain. But yet we don't. Because we find our contentment. We find our satisfaction. We find our joy, not in circumstances, but in Christ. It says, But some of these, they are grumblers. The ESV says they are malcontents. Your version may say, they are fault finders. And it's a picture of they are these people who are judgmental. They are negative. They look at those around them and find all the things that are wrong. You know people like that? Have you been people like that? And apart from Christ, that's what we do. We look at other people because when you look at other people and find what's wrong with them, what happens? It takes the focus off of you, right? So these people, they're malcontents, they're fault finders, they're, they're negative, they're judgmental. One uh, commentator puts it well. He says, these false teachers were not joyous and loving, but they were critical and quick to detect the weaknesses of others. And this is not characteristic of those who would lead the church well. This is not characteristic of those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit of God. This is not characteristic of those who love others and look to others. This is characteristic of those who are ungodly, sinful, wicked people. We've got to get moving because I don't want to get to more passage. So some of these are grumblers, some are fault finders. He says, secondly, some are following their own desires. And we see this all through Jude's letter. It is very clear 
that it is very clear that they are following their own desires. They are sensual people. They are in it uh, solely for their own gain, whether it's motivated by greed or pride or the, the sensual nature of their flesh that we've seen some of them be guilty of. But these people... Not only are they grumbling, not only are they fault finders, but they are following their own desires. They are not dying to self. They're not living unto Christ. They're living unto themselves. As believers, we may fight selfishness, but as believers, we live a life of selflessness. We look to Christ. We look to others. And he says not only are they grumblers and malcontents and follow their own desires, but they're, all, they're also boasters. They're boasters. They're not boasting in the Lord. They are clearly boasting in themselves. They are loudmouth boasters. They want you to know how good they are. They want you to know how good a teacher they are. They want you to know how, how well they walk in their life and how obedient they seem to be in their life. But in reality, as Ephesians 2 says, they are dead. They are not alive. They are dead. They are loudmouth boasters proclaiming not christ but themselves and then finally it says they show favoritism showing favoritism to gain great advantage i don't think we have time for all these verses but go with me real quick to james the book of james favoritism is condemned all through scripture in the old testament but i want to take you to the book of james james chapter 2 We'll just do the first verse here. You can read the first nine. It kind of fleshes this out. And then if you go to verse 13, it really shows you why ultimately that favoritism and partiality is wrong. But very simply put, James says, my brothers, show no partiality or no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and he goes on to give very good examples of what that looks like in the church there's no place for favoritism there's, a, there's no place for partial for partiality but this is clear amongst these people in jude's time jude has clearly called out the false teachers and apostates he's clearly called out these people that have infiltrated the church there is no denying his intolerance for the wicked and for the ungodly who pose as believers and leaders in the church. And we should be the same way. But before we wrap up, go with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. Because in seeking to be that which we do not want to be, we can become that very thing. Romans chapter 5 starting in verse 6. As we t think about the ungodly, as we think about the wicked, as we think about the definition that we see in Ephesians chapter 2. Christ and the ungodly. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, while we are still unrighteous, while we were still dead, as Paul would say to the church of Ephesus, 
Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That judgment that Christ comes to bring, that is certain, that is inevitable, we will be saved from that. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so as we think about the ungodly, as we think about the unrighteous, as we think about the wicked that will receive the full wrath of God, not just for a moment, but for eternity, let us be reminded that we were like them, that we too were those ungodly, unrighteous people, and that apart from the righteousness of Christ, we still would be. And that no one is beyond the grace of God. That no one is beyond what Christ came to do, and that is to save sinners. Sinners such as I. And so thanks be to Christ for redeeming us, for rescuing us. For while we were ungodly, wicked enemies of God, Christ died for us. And He gave us a new heart. And He gave us a new eternity. And as Jude is going to point to in the remainder of this letter, He has called us to persevere. He has called us to look to Him as He said in verse 1. And we'll end with this. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That as He comes to bring judgment to the sinners, as He comes to bring judgment to the unrighteous and to the ungodly, He will keep us, not by our righteousness, but by His. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. I thank You for what You have done for us in and through Christ. Lord, apart from Him, we have no hope. Apart from Him, all we have is Your judgment. So as we come even now to this Lord's table, as we continue to sing, Lord, as we have an opportunity to give, may we do all of these looking to Christ who saves. Looking to Christ who will come. Help us respond in faith this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.